Hello, all. Today we have Erica Kelly, who is a, an adult clinical psychologist at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. She's a clinical assistant professor. Um, her research interests include female sexual dysfunction, uh, psychological aspects of fertility and postpartum depression, PTSD and interpersonal violence victimization, which we've actually talked with Erica about in an earlier episode. She's very well published and, and extremely competent to address today's topic, mental health impact on sexual health. And so thank you for coming on, Erica, and welcome. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to return to talk about this topic. It's it's a huge topic. You know, this particular month we're recording this is a month, mental health awareness month. And I really wanted to showcase this because a lot of people in the in the sexual medicine space are, are you know, like more medical um, and really uh, don't realize how important it is to work with our psychological uh, colleagues. And so let's start the discussion with um, just a general question. How does mental health figure into the sexual health assessment? Mm hmm. So I think it's a very important aspect of the sexual health assessment. As many of us know, when we're looking at sexual dysfunction, the best way to really assess that is within that biopsychosocial framework. And so when we're looking at the psychosocial framework, we're really looking a lot at the role of mental health. And there are many ways in which this can, um, mental health and sexual health can interact. And I'm sure we will talk about of those ways. How does uh, mental health actually affect, how do the problems you run into and see actually affect sexual health? What, 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 uh, what disorders uh, really impacts the most mm -hmm. when it comes to? So the, the most common disorders that tend to affect sexual health are depression and anxiety. And part of that is, is probably because they are the most common mental health conditions to occur in the general population. And so by nature, we're going to see those as, you know, the most commonly that will affect sexual function, but there are a lot of ways in which they can negatively impact sexual health. I'll start with the brief overview of depression. So when we look at symptoms of depression, we see persistent depressed or low mood and or decreased pleasure or interest in activities that you tend to enjoy. We see decreased energy, difficulty sleeping, we see changes in appetite, difficulty concentrating. And we're, when we're looking at a depressive disorder, we know that that will impact several areas of functioning, including relationship functioning. So if we just think about those symptoms alone, we can certainly see where by nature of symptoms of low desire, right, low interest, in things you normally enjoy, someone is probably going to have low interest in sex and experience it as less pleasurable. And also think about the impact on energy levels, right? So might someone might not have the energy to engage in sexual activity. When depression starts to impact social functioning, we see disruptions in the relationship, which can have downstream impacts on sexual function. So this is just really a sampling of the ways in which depression can impact sexual health. I would say the other one that I mentioned is most common um, are anxiety. So an example of one of the more common anxiety disorders is generalized anxiety. 
disorder, and that's characterized by preoccupying worry thoughts. So what if thinking, what if this happens, what if that bad thing happens? And we tend to catastrophize when we experience anxiety. And these thoughts are really preoccupying. They disrupt our functioning. They get in the way of concentration, decision-making, attention. And they can be associated with physical symptoms of anxiety, like restlessness, feeling on edge, uh, feeling increased heart rate, shortness of breath. Those can be really triggering physiologic uh, um, experiences to have that can further increase anxiety. So there's very interesting ways in which anxiety can impact sexual health. So one of those, again, if we just look at the symptoms alone, is those preoccupying thoughts can end up as being distractions from sexual activity, from normal sexual response. So maybe it's thoughts like, oh my gosh, what if this uh, isn't a successful sexual encounter? What if my partner isn't enjoying this? What if I don't enjoy this? What if it's painful? Or maybe they're distracted by other sources of of anxiety. This is like, you know, the to-do list. Um, They're distracted during sexual activity and they're really not able to connect with normal sexual response. So it can certainly impact sexual function in that way. The other interesting thing that can come up with anxiety is, remember what I just said about the increased um, heart rate, shortness of breath, some physiologic arousal that happens, see that really typically with normal sexual response, right? When someone's feeling some arousal, um, engaging in sexual activity, they might be experiencing those physiologic reactions They're actually part of sexual response, but for someone with anxiety, that might actually trigger more anxiety and feel really uncomfortable. So again, very complex, interesting ways in which mental health can affect sexual health. Yeah, really. What's interesting is that um, it doesn't sound like all uh, mental health disorders, like for instance, we see people with bipolar disease and even psychosis, those don't impact sexual health as much. Is that correct? It may not affect sexual health as much, though it can certainly still affect sexual health. And I think part of what we're talking about too is is thinking about sort of the limitations of the research that does exist in these topic areas. So it's very possible that we might be underestimating the likelihood um, that disruptions in sexual function, sexual health occur within these mental health conditions. Um, for various reasons, as we all know, maybe underreporting of sexual health concerns because of stigma, embarrassment. Um, but if we look at bipolar disorder, as you mentioned, we, we can see the similar impacts on sexual health if someone experiences depressive episodes with bipolar disorder. So you can see the same patterns that happen that we just discussed. But interestingly, if someone experiences manic episodes, manic symptoms, hypomanic symptoms, we actually can see more um, compulsive or impulsive sexual behaviors or hypersexuality, which is a little bit different than what we see in the depressive episodes. And so it can affect sexual health in that way. Um, And sometimes someone experiences that as really egocentric, meaning they actually enjoy experience of increased, maybe heightened sexuality during the manic episode. Give me an idea about the um, epidemiology. I mean, how much, and let's focus on depression, because I agree, I mean, that's, we see more of that in in the office than than anything. Give me some idea of how prevalent this really is. 
So prevalence of mental health conditions, again, might be something that we tend to underestimate just based on, you know, limitations and research that exists. But in general, we see about one in eight individuals will experience a mental health condition. And the prevalence for depression is about 5%. One thing to note is that women are about twice as likely to experience depression than men. And if we look across reproductive health stands, we might see those numbers changing as well. So one example of what I'm talking about there is uh, postpartum depression, where about up to one in seven women might experience postpartum depression. And so we're talking about probably a higher likelihood of impact than within postpartum women on sexual function. Um, what do you do as a, as a psychologist? What are some of the tools you do to evaluate for these disorders? So there are really great screening measures that we tend to use to assess or screen for common mental health conditions. Examples would be the Patient Health Questionnaire 9, and there's even a shortened version of that, the PHQ-2, which I think is commonly used in primary care settings, but that will screen for depressive symptoms. So I do tend to use those in my practice. For anxiety disorders, we tend to use something called the Generalized Anxiety Disorder uh, seven-item scale, the GAD-7, and that can screen for anxiety symptoms. So when I have a first appointment with someone, I tend to, to use those screening measures in addition to my clinical interview. And I'm going to be using the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the DSM-5, that we use in, in mental health to diagnose conditions. Um, and I will do a clinical interview to assess for all of those symptoms and to really determine uh, the impact on functioning, distress levels, get a better sense of the impact of symptoms. One thing that's important here, I think, to highlight is um, looking at timeline. So I'll be doing a, you know, a thorough history to understand the timeline of symptoms. Is this something that's a recurrent condition, a chronic condition? Is this the person's first and only depressive episode? I want to get an understanding of that. And I, I talk part because I do think it, it relates to understanding the impact on sexual health. Because we might want to think about the timeline. What's the primary concern? Was it that depression came first and then they noticed the sexual dysfunction concerns? Maybe that's better that if we treat the depression, the sexual function might improve. Or did the sexual dysfunction occur prior to the mental health condition? That might be helpful in thinking about treatment. Um, but so I like to consider timeline. I will certainly assess for family history. The disorders that we're talking about tend to have a high heritability com component to them. And so it's helpful to think about family history. There's a family history of mood disorder, um, anxiety disorder, or um, schizophrenia spectrum disorder, psychosis. That can be really helpful in informing diagnosis. Um, so I would say those are, you know, the main highlights that I would tend to do, at least in an initial visit. Now, I, I know that medicine's not is not what you usually, you know, give to people, but you know a lot about the treatment um, of things. And once you've evaluated and come to a diagnosis, tell us a little bit about, you know, treatment um, regimens that you have. Mm -hmm. So for both mood disorders and anxiety disorders, since the ones that we're talking about most commonly impacting sexual health, the first line treatments of choice 
are medication and or psychotherapy. When we're looking at psychotherapy, typically the, the first-line treatment options are cognitive behavioral therapies. And for the medication um, piece, the most common are antidepressants, actually for both depression and anxiety. Um, some of this is based on the severity level for the patient. So when we're looking, for example, at severe depression, medication would be indicated. Versus mild depression, we might start first with psychotherapy and then later consider medication if that is if it does not resolve with psychotherapy. So again, some of the, the decision making around treatment will, will depend on severity level. Um, as you know, it's certainly going to depend on other medical factors, contraindications to certain medications. Um, we want to make sure that we're making mutual uh, treatment plans with the patient, right, so that they feel like they um, are really thoughtful about <clears throat> their informed decision about what treatment to um, consider. And Cognitive behavior therapy, I think one question that often comes up for individuals or that I, we commonly hear is, is how long? How long does that take? What, what's the frequency? What does that look like? Um, and so typically, a common regimen for cognitive behavior therapy would be about weekly or every other week or eight to 12 sessions. That's when we tend to see improvement in symptoms. So I think that's a, a pretty decent um expectation with cognitive behavior. Now, now, some people, you know, I mean, if you have that interest in sexual health and you see people who are on medication, whether they were put on it by, um, you know, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, or, or even a family doctor, so, and, and you notice that some of these medications are kind of anti-sex. Um, and I, I tend to notice that even a psychiatrist uh, don't all think about the, the sexual health part when they're giving medication. And I think you're kind of unusual in the sense that you're a psychologist, but really have a, a very big awareness of treatment and what, what that might mean to sexual health. So talk a little bit about that. That's, that's a big problem. I find. I agree. It is a big problem. Um, the most, you know, the more commonly prescribed medications to treat depression and anxiety, the antidepressants do um, have higher likelihood of negative impacts on sexual function. And we see that across really all um, domains of sexual function, desire, arousal, orgasm, satisfaction. And so it is something that's really important to think about. And I agree. I think a lot of times patients aren't informed about the potential side effects on sexual health when they start these medications. Um, or maybe they're overwhelmed in the visit, you know, what maybe they are told those side effects, but they're just so overwhelmed or even think about the symptoms of depression or anxiety make it might make it less likely that they hear and retain the information about the side effects. So I mentioned that in part because I think it could be helpful to make sure that we're following up conversations we have in sessions with maybe, you know, paper documentation that the, the patient can go home with so that they can review those side effects, they can review the treatment options, especially when we're thinking about individuals with depression and anxiety. They might have a hard time concentrating and maintaining attention in the session. So I do think when considering medication, like it's important to make sure that you're giving them all as much access to that information as possible to make the informed decision. 
I will say in my practice, I hear quite frequently patients express frustration that they weren't informed of the side effects on sexual function and sexual health. Um, and, you know, they'll go, you know, it took me eight weeks to get to the therapeutic dose of this medication that I finally see some improvement, you know, in my depression, but I'm so frustrated that I have no, no desire um, and express a lot of frustration that they weren't informed of, of the um, potential negative impact on sexual function. It seems like the, the only thing left to do is to maybe do a lot of communicating with the healthcare team for that patient and sending out letters and whatnot, because again, I think we're talking about a field, sexual medicine, that's just not well known and, and not really thought about while, uh, you know, treatment plans are being formulated. And so what, what do you do when you see, you know, somebody coming in from a, you know, a family doc or, or even a psychiatrist that they're on a medication that just, you know, this kills their sex drive. What what do you do? You know, I know you might recommend another medication, but but how do you communicate that with with people? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I will say we do in general work towards you know uh, providing more information out there in the healthcare community. Is things like doing this podcast, right, right. to talk about, right. about about the importance of this. And um, at this point, we do see. Pretty strong recommendation. If you see a patient with depression, screen for sexual dysfunction. If you see a patient for sexual dysfunction, screen for depression. Um, and so I, I think on both sides, you know, in psychiatry, primary care, uh, we should all be considering using some routine screening measures because we know that this relationship is so high and it might affect how you address the treatment plan. Um, and just on that topic of like, how, what do we do then what are the options we don't have all of the research yet to see what's really the ideal way to go right is it a decreased dosage because then you run the risk of you know increase in the depression or anxiety symptoms um there are certainly there's some research about um adjunctive therapies that you can do that can help with the sexual function side effects or potential changes to a medication that has fewer side effects. Um, so I, again, just to highlight, I think it's important to really assess, you know, sexual function and what are the goals of the patient when we're considering what treatment routes to go. Um, but I, in practice, will provide a lot of psychoeducation to patients about the potential impact of medication on sexual function. Um, I like to work with them, again, kind of on that timeline, try to understand what are all of the factors that are contributing to their sexual function. Maybe for some reason, they're not willing or not able to change the medication. So are there other things that we can address to help improve the sexual function? Again, going back to that biopsychosocial model, um, we can focus on like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy to improve sexual function and response. Um, So we might, you know, really try to amp up other facets of sexual function to improve it as best we can. I do do my best to try to communicate with the treating provider and just, you know, collaborate. Hey, I met with this person. Um, they mentioned the side effect that's really frustrating. I uh, wanted to know, like, is there anything else that we can consider from a medication standpoint? I'm very lucky that I um, have the opportunity to work, you know, directly within the NOBI department. So I get a lot of opportunities for communication with um, 
other providers who are seeing the same mutual patient and might be managing medication. We also have a women's reproductive mental health board meeting monthly. So we meet with the, the psychologist, meet with the psychiatrist, and we're able to talk through some treatment plan. And those are great opportunities where I can help be a liaison between the patient and the other provider to communicate. This. Um, I think that's that those opportunities for collaboration and communication um, and, you know, opportunities to advocate for our patients and be a liaison is really important in part because we know there's so much stigma around um, sexual health. And so I will frequently also hear from my patients that they feel like, you know, embarrassed to bring that up to their prescribing provider. I feel like, oh, I don't have enough so time. True. 15 minute appointment. There's not so enough time. Um, so I, you know, I really do what I can to help help with that communication. I also, you know, like to try to help role play some communication with the patient. I help, help, you know, work through, okay, how are you going to bring that up with them? What are some words that you can use? Help build their confidence that they are able to talk about with that, um, about that with their treating provider. And so I think a lot of it is communication and collaboration and providing as much education as we can to the broader medical community about this um, intersection between sexual and mental health. Oh, thanks for commenting on that because, um, I, I just want, you know, the medical people uh, listening to the podcast to really know and understand um, the need to work with uh, the, the psychology uh, colleagues and, and just really how impacting what they do is uh, on sexual health. Um, the other thing I, I find is um, just helping me as a like a medical person how do I really, uh, if I want to have my patient be seen or consulted by you, um, how do I uh, talk about that? Because you mentioned shame and embarrassment mm -hmm. about mental health issues. Um, coach me through a discussion with a patient and saying, I'd really like you to go because I can't tell you the number of like, okay, we're going to get this going. And you send out a referral and just nothing happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a fabulous point and, and question. And I think there's probably a lot of variables that go into that. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I think part of it is when we can do warm handoffs and maybe, you know, help really help facilitate that schedule have the office call the patient rather than rely on the patient calling the office to schedule the appointment, things right. like that, I think will make a difference. Um, but I think one thing that comes to mind when we're talking about this is the value in universal screening. I ask all of my patients about mental health because we know it's so important to sexual health. It's so important. It's very common that mental health will affect sexual health. It's really an important piece of our, our treatment plan. And so I ask everybody this and I want to check in with you about mental health symptoms. So just starting from, you know, the assessment, the intake piece and, and setting the stage for this is universally screened for because it's so common. I think that helps a little bit with, you know, the validation, the normalization. It's not singling that person out. You know, it's like you're you're the only one. This is so terrible. I can't believe you have these mental health symptoms that are affecting sexual health. Right. So I think starting with some of that universal screening will be helpful. Um, I think doing some psychoeducation about the psycho biopsychosocial model 
and how we really want to think about setting them up for the best chance of success. We really want to think about um, quality of life. Sometimes I, I think it's helpful to say something along the lines of, you know, it's not just about absence of disease, right, or getting rid of disease or dysfunction. We're talking about really maximizing your sexual health, quality of life. Um, and so this can be a really, really helpful way to make sure that we're doing that. Mental health is so important. And I think it's helpful to throw in the statistics. You know, we see that um, mental health conditions can often double the likelihood of sexual dysfunction. And so it's just so common. And the great thing is we have treatments available. That's lovely. And these are mental or these are medical conditions. So I think clarifying too, right, that these mental health conditions we're talking about, depression, anxiety, they're medical conditions that require treatment. They will not typically go away on their own. Um, I think it could be helpful to clarify um, it's not their fault, right? It's not a, it's not a weakness. It's not, um, you know, there's something wrong with you that this is happening. It's, it's a, I think a lot of people struggle with with that idea with mental health, like, you know, I'm a weak person and I should be able to control this mental health condition. And no, it's a medical condition like any other and it requires treatment. And the great thing is we have available treatments. And so I think being able to describe it, it that way and provide um, validation too about how challenging it can be to talk about it. So I think a, a little bit of validation can go a long way. One thing I really like, I think we talked about this in the previous episode for a different different topic, but is saying, thank you so much for sharing that with me. Thank you so much for talking with me about your depressed mood. Thank you so much for sharing with me about your anxiety. That can be really challenging to, to discuss. And I want to um, get you connected with some resources that can be really helpful. And we can work together as a team to improve your sexual health. But, no, that's a great way of framing it. I I really appreciate that really helps me and I'm, I'm sure that'll help my medical uh, colleagues listening to this we started talking about the biopsychosocial model of, of evaluation just for our learners just give us a few more uh, points of explanation about what, what is that so we have a lot of research at this point that indicates the biopsychosocial model is um probably the best way to approach sexual dysfunction. And what that really means is that the, there doesn't tend to be one single factor that determines sexual dysfunction. So we're looking at biologic factors. So this can be things like um, endocrine hormonal factors. Um, this can be medical conditions that contribute to sexual dysfunction. So things like diabetes um, can contribute when we look at the psychological components, that's exactly what we've been talking about already. It's you know, conditions like depression, anxiety, um, bipolar disorder, PTSD, which we haven't touched on, but that can commonly affect that. Um, psychosocial history factors. So individuals with a history of abuse um, might be more vulnerable to sexual dysfunction. So that's a psychosocial variable. We think about um, relationship factors. So is there a conflict in the relationship that might be impacting sexual function? Are they able to communicate with each other? Is that disrupting sexual function? And then we think about cultural factors that can play a role in sexual health. So this can be things like um, the influence of you know, community, upbringing, religion, cultural 
expectations around sexuality and gender roles can certainly affect sex function. So this is just, you know, tidbits, um, really, of each of these areas, but it's, it's really thinking about all of the factors that might affect sexual health and sexual function. And the best thing we can do is be very broad in our assessment, sure that we are touching on each of those areas uh, to really maximize treatment success. That, that makes That's- so much sense. That really does. I appreciate that explanation for people. I think in, in, in conclusion, you know, where you're sitting as a psychologist and, and talking to a lot of medical people again, I just, I, I really, give me your last parting shots. I, I really uh, want to hear uh, about just working with uh, psychologists and, and what, what we can do as, as medical practitioners to, to really reach out to you and, and be available. Because there's not as many Erica's as there are you know, the people that do medical things. And so what do we do? I think a key point here is building your referral network, really. Um, I think you're right. Not everybody is in a setting um, that's similar to one that I'm in, that we all get to work and collaborate so well as interdisciplinary teams. But I think spending some time understanding what resources are in your area that your patients can access. So you might be looking at community agencies, um, hospitals, academic centers, right? Spending a little bit of extra time doing that. And there are great resources to do that. So we have, um, for example, in Ohio, we have an Ohio Psychological Association, and you can filter through what specialties a psychologist has to find local to your area. Um, You know, we have our organizations like ISHWISH, STAR, um, the focus on sexual health, where you can identify providers within those networks. So I think it's really spending some time trying to identify mental health providers who specialize in sexual health so that you can immediately offer that treatment to your patient, right? I, it's one of the barriers. If you don't know, if you have nowhere to send your patient, you're not likely to ask about it. So, right. I, right, like spend a little bit of time getting connected, figuring out what your referral network is. Um, and that might take a little bit of work to do and asking colleagues again, but there's a lot of great resources for online um, lists of providers that um, people can access. And also remember, people are friendly, right? We all want to connect and help each other out. So send an email and just ask. If you don't know, ask your colleagues, send an email, email a listserv and ask for recommendations for people in your area. But I just think a little bit, again, goes a long way for investing and understanding your referral resources and network um, and, you know, having some respect about this important topic, find some educational opportunities, stay up to date. There's great continuing education on mental health topics. And um, the final thing I'll say, cause I can talk forever about this, but um, you know, I think in some ways we have a responsibility to be advocates for our patients and share. Maybe one thing you can think about is contact one other colleague and talk to them about the importance of mental health and how it intersects with sexual health. We can spread the word so easily that way. Well, I appreciate you taking time out today because this is such an important subject and I could let you talk forever on this thing because there are so many aspects. It's so intricate. And and I still think there's a gap between 
the psychological world and the, the, the medical world and getting together, especially in small areas where you don't feel it as much. I know in, in, in Cleveland, but I'm, I'm in Toledo and oh my God, do we feel it there that there's just this uh, desert. So thank you so much for clarifying and, and really helping us think this issue through that we can help our patients better. So Thanks again for coming. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I want to throw one more thing out there. The uh, positive side of the pandemic is now we have a lot more access to virtual yes. care. Yes. So remembering, you know, we um, if you don't have it local in your area, you can always consider virtual options, remote options for mental health services. We have um, come a long way with that, which is That fabulous. is such a good point. Well, thank you for that parting shot. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Ed for Sex Men. Please find the articles used in today's discussion in the show notes for further study. Also, you will find the contact information for our expert today.